Welcome to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 38. We have just a couple more interviews left from the Lean Startup Conference that we're wanting to share with you, including today's, which is a fantastic conversation with Dan Olson, who's an innovation consultant in the Bay Area and author of the Lean Product Playbook. After he spoke at the conference, Josh got to sit down with him and talk about his book and his six-step process for innovators in large organizations uh, who want to make new products that actually solve the problem and not just show off the engineers and developers' skills. They also discussed what to do when your internal team just might not cut it when transitioning from waterfall to lean. Hi there, everyone. I'm Vicki Clafter, producer of Inside Outside Innovation, the podcast that brings you the latest insights from people who know the most about building lean businesses, innovating within corporations, and disrupting entire industries with passion and precision. Connect with our team on Twitter at the IO Podcast or leave us a review on iTunes. And if you've got an area or idea you'd like us to dig into, let us know on either one of those mediums and we would be happy to talk about it on the show. Now, Let's get started. So I understand it's kind of a six-step process to be able to dive into really what the Lean Product Playbook uh, tells us. Can you kind of at least at a high level tell us about the six steps? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I wrote the book. It came out last year um, after you know working on a variety of different products and working with a lot of different companies and seeing kind of the common challenges and struggles that people had. What I found is a lot of people, they are motivated to adopt Lean principles and they understand the principles at a high level, but when they go to actually apply them in their teams, they run into obstacles and challenges. And so that's why it's a playbook. It's very hands-on and tactical. And uh, one of my favorite reviews of the book, uh, somebody wrote a tweet that said, in, in the Lean Startup, Eric Reese explained what it is and why it's important. And in the Lean Product Playbook, Dan explains how to do it. Nice. So nice. the six steps are basically, it starts with the product market fit framework, which is a pyramid for product market fit. And the market consists of your target customers uh, and what their needs are, basically. And those are the two layers that are form the bottom of the pyramid that are the market. Um, and then the product is basically going to decompose into three key elements. One is your value proposition, which is how are you going to deliver those needs in a way that's better or different than the competition. Yep. Feature set, which is what's the functionality that's going to actually convey those benefits. And then user experience. What's the user experience that's going to actually bring those features to life for people? So... What each of those layers is, when you have that basically, is product market fit, which is how well are the decisions you're making on the three product layers? How well do they resonate and fit with the two market layers? And that's really just a framework to capture all the key assumptions you need to make when you're defining and building a product. And so I just turned that into a process where each of those five layers is a step. So we start out by articulating our hypotheses about our target customer, articulate our hypotheses about what their underserved needs are, and then we articulate how we think we're going to meet them in a way that's better or different. We articulate what our MVP feature set is. We create a UX design. And then we close the loop. We close the loop from the top of the pyramid down to the bottom to the customers again with step six, which is testing your prototypes with customers. And I'm a big believer in testing before you build. Yes. Because it's less wasteful and you're going to learn. You're never going to get it right the first time and you're going to iterate. So it's a lot faster to iterate without coding. Sure, sure. What are some of the mistakes that you see traditional product teams make uh, that really your process helps address? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ones, in, in the book I start off by talking about the difference between problem space and solution space. Many teams just jump into solution space, which means they start building something. 
or they start designing something without truly understanding the problem space, which is what are the customer needs. And so a lot of my book focuses on that fuzzy front end of trying to, and it's messy, right? If you go and interview 20 people and ask them why this product is valuable to them, they're not going to use the same words. So it's very messy. But trying to make some sense out of that and come up with a, a well-defined structure of the problem space before you go in and tackle the solution space. So that's a key concept. Yep. When you're currently working with product teams uh, and they're trying to uh, adopt a six-step process, yeah. you, you mentioned that many times they jump to the solution space right. too right. quickly. Uh, what are some of the things that you tell them to keep them back into the problem space? How, how do you get them to really focus yeah. in on understanding those customer insights? Yeah, I mean, one is just you know training on the process. Every, when you bring it up to people, they kind of nod and agree. And it, it's very much like the difference between just jumping in and creating a mock-up and starting to think about the colors and the fonts and the shapes. It's like, no, before we do that, what should the layout be? You know, What should the information architecture be like? If we were going to design a car... We wouldn't start out by saying, gosh, what color of red should we paint it? So it's people tend to get it once you get clear on, hey, you know, before we build a widget, who's the widget for and what's it supposed to do for them, right? And, and a lot of times it's just the team's bias or to, to talk about features. It's just, a, you know, hey, we need sure. a wizard that does this. We need a feature that does this. We need, we need a configurator. And so you just always ask yourself, like, hey, what is a configurator a benefit or not? And then you can apply the five whys. Like, why would it be valuable to someone? Oh, because it does X. Okay. And, and so what happens is features end up becoming a shorthand mm -hmm. internally, mm -hmm. but then next thing you know, that's the label and it sticks and that's what marketing calls it. And when it goes out the door and you, you kind of lost track of why you're doing it in the first place, right? Sure. And the other counter, the other example like that is, you know, sales teams go out and some client will say, oh, just build X for me. And they give them a solution spec. And then you dutifully build X for them and then they're not happy with it. And then why? It's because you didn't really fundamentally understand why they wanted that in the first place. There could have been better ways to do it. Turns out they didn't connect the dots between problem space and solution space. You know sure. what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So you've been implementing these six steps as well as probably a lot of other tools and advice that you give to people for a while now. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the successes that people are seeing? You know, they're now changed. They adopt uh, this methodology or at least they're practicing it a mm -hmm. little bit better than before. What are some of the outcomes that you're starting to see? Yeah, and it's always interesting, you know, depending on the size of the team and how long they've been around, um, how much change... We're talking about some people adopt right away and change quickly and, and see some of the benefits right away. The benefits are quicker time to market, right? You're actually, because you're iterating and validating before you build, you can actually nail things down before you build and reduce overall cycle time. People are seeing better results, response from customers when they launch their product. They're not launching a product and having underwhelming metrics where it's like, oh, geez, we thought this was great, but it's not working out. So they're mm -hmm. seeing better uh, customer satisfaction, they're seeing better revenue as a result of it. Yeah, so those are some of the things. But then, you know, other places, they're bigger, they've been around longer, and it takes it takes a longer time. Change management is harder. And so one of the, um, I didn't actually put this in the book, but one of my clients was trying to do this. They've been around for a long time. And um, one of the things that we found successful there is to try to train all the, they had 10 different feature teams, to train all 10 on these processes. And it's kind of interesting. You you tend to see, I was the one training them on, on these lean startup concepts, you tend to see like a natural bell curve occur where there are the people at the top of the bell curve who totally get it, <laughs> totally excited, have the skills, ready to go, and the people at the bottom of the bell curve saying, hey Dan, can you give us that talk again? We didn't quite get the, could you give us that talk? I'm like, sure, I'll give you the talk for the third time. It's all good, you know. And so just one is acknowledging that there's different levels of skill and kind of buy-in, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And just try to, among your team, identify the people that have the highest skill and highest buy-in. And what we did is we kind of stacked the deck and made one kind of dream team of uh, not 
everyone on the team was extremely skilled and motivated, but a lot of them were. And we gave them one of the most important projects that really required these kind of customer-centric innovation approaches to succeed because we are doing more blue sky development. Sure. And um, some of the other teams, you know, didn't adopt the policies as much and processes as much, but these guys did. And, um, and because they were customer-centric, they actually created a product that was innovative, that delighted customers, got a lot of positive press for it outside the company, and then we use that internally as a champion, as a role model to hold up and say, see, if you adopt these principles, you can achieve similar results, and it kind of helped bring people further down the bell curve, up the bell curve, and, and adopt it. Sure. Just because we're uh, personally fascinated a little bit more about the customer insights uh, mm -hmm. piece, and we hear many times that pushback of customers don't really know what they want, Sure. right? I think Clayton Christensen just came out with his new book about competing against luck, uh, talking about that the majority of times it really is luck in terms of guessing exactly what should be developed, even when you go and ask people what they want, because sure. they might not know really what it is that sure. they want. Yeah. What are some of the things that successful product teams do to increase the odds of actually truly uncovering what people want? Sure. Right? It's the whole Henry Ford, faster horse sort of thing, right? Or people yeah. complaining about Steve Jobs, he doesn't go and talk to him, he just yeah. has intuition and gut. The interesting thing is I think too many teams and entrepreneurs use those things as an excuse to not talk to customers. You know, Dan, what I'm doing is so disruptive. There's no way a customer can get their head. It's going to blow their mind. <laughs> Self-driving cars, you know. The key to that dilemma is problem versus solution space, right? What you need to do is even if you have a cool new creative solution is make sure you're very clear on what problems it solves and how it does so in a way that's better than what's already out there. Mm -hmm. And I have a framework in the book, uh, Importance versus Satisfaction, to help help tease that apart where it's like how important is the user needs you're trying to address with each of the different products or features and how satisfied are with people with what's out there today and what it can happen is when you have a truly disruptive innovation it changes the scale of that satisfaction axis so I have an example in the book where like and that's the funny thing about product market fit markets which are basically a set of people that have a common need they don't change anywhere near as quickly as the solutions of the technology mm. do right the products so the example I talk about is the need to listen to the customer need to listen to music on the go. It's first addressed by, you know, FM radios. You couldn't play your own music. Then the Walkman came along. All of a sudden, that's way new high watermark for satisfaction to meet that need. And then the MP3 player comes along. That's a new high watermark. And then, the, you know, I, the uh, iPod comes along. And then now everyone's listening to it on their phones, right? So that's, that's an example of kind of relatively rapid disruptive innovation for a single need over time. But I think too many times companies convince themselves they're doing disruptive innovation. But regardless, if you truly understood what was important in that, and it's funny, I actually do give a talk called Messaging Market Fit, okay. um, where I peel off step three and then we talk about messaging. And I use the iPod as the example, you know. And I guarantee they may not have done a lot of external testing, but they were very clear that portability was important for people. Number of songs that you carry is important for people. You know, what were the things that are important? Ease of access of music with their click wheel, right? So... You know, it may seem like they're just launching these products out, but I guarantee that they're thinking very deeply about the product benefit. And in fact, there's a there's a Steve Jobs quote is, that goes against some of these other quotes. It just basically says like, you know, you don't start with the technology; you start with what's the customer problem, and then you go from there. And he, he has a quote like that, basically. So, um, so I do think it's great to have innovative solution ideas, but to use that as an excuse to skip problem facing, you're setting yourself up for for a high risk of That's failure. That's very insightful. So, uh, Dan, we're hearing more and more of companies saying, oh, man, we know we need to be lean, we need to be agile. 
I don't know if my people can do it. So I need to use a Pivotal Labs. I need to use a startup studio. I need to use outsource dev teams and product teams, etc. Is there a place for that? Because uh, I, I would assume you're advocating for we can teach you and we can figure out how to do that. Well, stuff no, internally. I think it's a mix of approaches. You got to be. I mean, I think it's it can be tough to look yourself in the mirror and say, does my team have the chops to do this? And that's why I was saying about assessing the bell curve. Like I know I would I, I really meant those two dimensions of skill and motivation or buy-in. I, I would mm-hmm. assess people. It's like, we're doing change management. If we're going to lean, let's take all the devs, all the PMs, all the designers, and let's, like, literally on a you know, high, medium, low grid, do skill and motivation and see where we fall out. And yeah. if everyone's in the bottom left, low, low, then you need to, yeah, you need to do something about it. Um, you can't take everyone behind the barn and then, like, you know, <laughs> hire a new team. You know, it's, and I see some people do that, too. Like, in other situations, they, they fire people preliminarily before they have the replacement in place, and now you're just stuck in, stuck in the water, yeah. you know, losing ground. So it is one of these situations where you need to, like, keep the factory moving but change the equipment while you're doing it. Um, so I think it's perfectly fine. And, in fact, one of my clients, an excellent example of using Pivotal Labs, um, they augmented their inter- internal dev team. And he bought the bare minimum. He got one pair, and his whole idea was let's have this rub off. Yeah. Let's 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 experientially work with them and learn and have it rub off. And it worked. And you know, it was basically like, you know, instead of telling people, hey, I think we can achieve a higher velocity. I really think we should. And it's just like this theoretical aspiration. You have no data. It's like, no. Guess what? With that pair, we totally doubled our velocity. So if they can do it, you can do it, right? And and, and so that was good. So he actually was very smart and using it in a limited scope way to augment his team and show them the light and get some, some examples, right? But I think you got to do what you got to do. And um, if you have too many people in the low, low, then, you know, augmenting in the near term while you ramp up recruiting efforts. Because the other thing, too, is if your company's not known for being lean, then the recruiting challenge comes up of how do we attract people that want to do it? And you have to really have a good sales pitch, you have to have a good, hopefully, leader who can talk the talk and say, look, I know we used to be waterfall, but now we're going to go lean and, and and be out there and kind of be a beacon to attract new talent that's in the high, high on motivation and skill. Sure. Or at sure. least potential mm-hmm. skill, right? So so I think it's okay. I think you. I think the one thing I would say is you can't completely outsource the core. It's not a long-term strategy, um, right? But as a way to kind of help people see uh, and experience the new techniques and skills, I think it, it can be viable, yeah. Dan, uh, anything else that you're working on or that's caught your eye recently? Uh, something that you're learning, maybe something you picked up at the conference or you're curious about that our listeners uh, would be honored to know about? Hmm. Well, so so when I was at Intuit, which is where I um, started out as a product manager, it was a great place to learn product management. Um, in wrestling with some of these decisions about how to prioritize what to build next for customers, I developed an importance versus satisfaction framework that I described with you. A few years later, I was very excited when I picked up Tony Olwick's book, What Customers Want, and he had his own importance versus satisfaction framework. I'm like, all right, there's something really here. And it's funny, I was just speaking at a conference in Australia, and someone else kind of was mentioning some of Tony's ideas in their talk. I was like, that's great. And we were talking about jobs to be done, and I think jobs to be done is one of these things that people are excited about. At the end of the day, it's very, very, very similar to the stuff that I'm preaching about problem space before solution space. Um, and I was just talking and joking about how, hey, there's no... There's no really good book out there. And uh, I did, like two days later, I got an email from, from Strategy and Tony Olbrich's organization that his book just came out. So uh. there's a, his book is called Jobs to be Done. 
I haven't read it yet, but I'm sure it's going to be great. So I would, I would recommend that to people. All right. And then the other thing uh, resource I would mention is um, if you're in the Bay Area, I run a meetup down in Palo Alto, Lean Product and Lean UX meetup. Um, we have over 4,500 members, and we have leading speakers, all, like a lot of the people here. Laura Klein speaking on the 17th about her new book, Build Better Products. I recommend that resource, too, for people. Um, I've had, you know... Jeffrey Moore come, got Marty Kagan come, got a lot of great product and UX yeah. people, Innovation Lean, um, down in Palo Alto. So it's meetup.com slash lean dash product. And if you're not in the Bay Area, we videotape all the speakers and put it online as well. So it's That's a resource for people. That's great. Uh, again, what's the name of your book? Where can people find it? And where yeah. can they learn more about what you do, Dan? Thanks. They want to figure yeah, out more. The book is called The Lean Product Playbook. It's on Amazon. There's hardback, there's Kindle, and there's audiobook. So it's available in all those formats. And uh, it's on Amazon. You can also go to leanproductplaybook.com if you want to learn more about the book. Um, and then my website is dan-olson.com. I post um, a lot of my talk videos there and slides. I'm a big SlideShare fan. Sounds good, Dan. Really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. That finishes another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. We're grateful to Dan Olson for making time for us at the Lean Startup Conference. We would love to connect with you through Twitter at the IO Podcast or on our website, insideoutside.io. If you've got a topic or area you'd like us to dig into, let us know. We would love to share our insights and invite other experts like Dan onto the show so that they can share theirs. Until next time, go out and innovate.